As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey, and today we are answering the question: What would a podcast that answers your questions sound like? Joining me to do so is a man who, much like Karen Benzema, Matt Hummels, and Thomas Muller, is very welcome to sit at the top table of soccer. Taylor Rockwell. Hello, the top table of soccer. That's exciting. I, I assume that was going to be all players who might be at the Euros this summer, but I'll take top table instead. They are all indeed players who may or may not be at the Euros who've been welcomed back into the fold. I will say, Taylor, you've yet to be exiled by anybody so far so you're doing better than those guys i guess i mean so far we'll we'll see how this show goes and then all the other shows to follow there's time there's time <laughs> joining taylor and i is a man who's busier digging into the numbers than harry kane's agent right now it's joe lowry <laughs> oh i'm gonna take that i think that's flattering to me but uh ryan thank you as always for the flattering introduction of course joe of course you're very welcome and uh, let's get the prediction straight off the bat harry kane next season where now go uh harry kane will be joining my summer men's league team uh, i'd like to be the first oh. to announce that we really need some quality um and i think harry we're gonna stick him at center back because i'm gonna stick everybody at center back but uh, we're delighted to have him for sure i would pay so much money to see harry kane try to survive a summer in arizona <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be a reality show i would watch he would just be permanently covered in sunblock oh they would gosh. dip him into a vat of sunblock like achilles and then they just have to worry about that heel. it's it's all or nothing oh, but it's just one cameraman following around <laughs> harry kane for a summer in the desert that's great <laughs> I'd like to see that. Who would your manager be in that team? I think uh, jo- Jose would be good. Oh, yeah. No, he's, already he's, know he's not going to Roma. He's not going to Roma. He's coming out here. Uh, is Roma the name of your HOA in, in Phoenix? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. It Thank is. you. Thank you for saying that. But I get mis- mistaken for that. I like that we're starting off by going incredibly niche right from the jump. Let's do this. Let's go even. <laughs> Joe, we need to know more about your local housing ordinances, if you don't mind. <laughs> oh, that's for a future show, Taylor. Come on. I can't spit all the beans right now. We've got work to do. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. We do. I feel like we started off pretty broad talking about Harry Kane and world-class <laughs> players, but hey, we, we went down that tunnel pretty quickly is what I'll say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is, as I mentioned, a listener question show. Thank you to everybody who has submitted them. What say you, boys? Shall we get into it? Let's do it. We shall. I'm still I'm still trying to figure out where I would like to be exiled if I were going to be exiled. Like, are we talking, am I like a drift on an iceberg? Is that the level of exile that we're talking, or do I just have to go to another state or country? Um, like maybe like a Napoleon Island or something. How about <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. You can send me to Iceland. I'll go to Iceland. That's fine. That sounds fun. Yeah. Right. Iceland. Oh, yeah. The original island. I like that. <laughs> Indeed. <Very good. laughs> the original island. The first. <laughs> Apart from Ireland as well. Maybe that the was... OG Iceland. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of islands named after the word island. Hmm. Interesting. Not really interesting. Should we get into the questions? Here's one from uh, Tyler Kinsella. Thank you very much, Tyler. With the super unfortunate injury to Aaron Long, is it Chris Richards' time for the USMNT? It's Richards. It's Richards' time. Or is it? I don't know. Taylor, what do you think? Yeah, I think it probably is. I don't know about the musical number accompanying it, but I I would like that to be a feature as well. What's wrong with it? 
Oh, just, I don't know if we're going to play that every time he comes in. Is that his entrance we music? Are now. Is that playing the whole time he's playing? I mean, yeah, I think we probably have to. We should probably <laughs> clip that one and keep it for posterity. Uh, I think I think it is probably his position to lose maybe battling Matt Miazga. I do think a lot of it will depend on John Brooks being healthy. Not that he wouldn't be, but if he's there, I think that gives you a lot of veteran stability to be able to be play a less experienced center back. But if John Brooks were hurt or weren't able to participate, then maybe Burhalter goes with a more kind of veteran pairing, even if they're not of the same quality. So Aaron Long obviously got an Achilles injury, mm. a ruptured Achilles, Achilles tendon, in fact. That's a season ender. Bad news yeah. for Red Bulls and bad news for the USMNT as well. A bit of a shame for a player. He's got a really good story, hasn't he? Sort of rising from, mm-hmm. from the ranks to, to captain his country. Very, very impressive stuff. Uh, Joe, what do you make of this one? It seems like there are some other potential. It might not be Chris Richards' turn necessarily. As we mentioned, we've got Matt Miesga in the picture. Walker Zimmerman, is he? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like a bunch. Like a like a little bunch of center backs. Imagine it like a, a grape stem, right? There's like five of them right next to each other, all separate grapes. This is a really strange analogy that I've chosen to open with. But, I mean, it's John Brooks on an island all on his own in terms of quality right now, or at least our perception of his quality. And then you've got Tim Ream, who I think is probably the backup at that left center back spot slash assistant to the assistant coach, maybe in that group. And then you've got on the the right center back spot, you had Aaron Long. Now he's not in the picture. You've got Matt Miazga, Chris Richards, Walker Zimmerman, maybe Miles Robinson, some other MLS folks in there potentially. But Richards is the most talented player in that group. He's he's not at John Brooks' level right now, but his ceiling is higher than John Brooks' ceiling, in my view at least. He's already got three caps for the U.S. men's national team, but Berhalter's kind of been easing him in. Uh, he's, he's played against Panama back in November, against Jamaica, and then Northern Ireland in March. But he only has 85 minutes across those three games, so he hasn't made any starts. He's come on in the second half all three times. I think his time to be eased along at this point is over, not necessarily because Berhalter was always going to go that route, but because this injury to Aaron Long has forced his hand. And I don't think the U.S. will be worse off having Chris Richards in that starting group. Taylor, I think you and I were advocating before that March window for him to be the starter against uh, against Jamaica and Northern Ireland in that window. Yeah. That didn't happen, but we've watched him at Hoffenheim. He's dealing with a little injury himself right now, a hamstring injury. Right. But if he's back and ready to go for the Nations League window with those four games, the friendly surrounding the two Nations League games, I, I think he's ready to play. I think he's good enough. It, it, the question I have is if he's good enough for Bayern and good enough to get regular minutes at Hoffenheim, obviously you mentioned he's got a, a picking up a little injury at the moment, but why is it even a question of whether he he would slot straight in? Is it? Is it? I mean, I would argue he's not good enough for Bayern, which is why he's on loan right now and play, hasn't really played for them. Got minutes uh, though, didn't he? <laughs> I did he some uh, maybe some, in preseason. Yeah. No, he's yeah. played this season, yeah. hasn't he? A little bit. Mostly at right back, as far as yeah. I can recall. He, he, he wasn't, yeah. he wasn't a, a fixture there, right? And that's why he went to Hoffenheim. Ryan, I think to answer that question, sorry, Taylor, then I'll turn it over to you. It's, I, get, I, get, I think the way Greg Berhalter looks at his players is less about what they're doing with their clubs, to be honest, and more about what they bring to his system and what he sees when he has them in for an extended camp. And I don't think he's in a real hurry to rush along young players and get them in the group. If he sees them as good enough and if he can work with them and get them in his system, then yeah, they're going to play. But that that hadn't really happened, I guess, with Chris Richards before. I think it's going to happen now. Sorry, for, again, for stepping on your toes there, Taylor. No, that's fine. I, I agree with you. Uh, I think it's probably also that, you know, he's a youngster. There's other established players in those positions or that have been in those positions for a while under Berhalter. And there is an idea, much as fans don't love it, that if you have this established hierarchy to bring somebody in and have them vault to the top of that or near the top of that, it's going to ruffle feathers. And it also then creates instability. If that's not the kind of permanent arrangement, then it gives players that feeling of like, well, can anybody come in in any given moment? Does it matter what I've done in the past? And I think it's a really delicate line you have to walk in terms of upsetting the order. With the injury to Aaron Long, I think it's a clearer path for sure. Joe, my question back to you, though, is I think of Aaron Long as like, not to say John Brooks is slow or not mobile, but I think of Aaron Long as being the more sort of covering center back in that partnership, the one that can close down ground a little bit faster does Richards have that ability as well in your mind yeah oh for sure yeah he's okay he's like Aaron Long and John Brooks had a baby kind of how I I think of him he's he's (laughs) versatile he's mobile defensively he can cover in behind for John Brooks but he can also pass the ball like John Brooks can Richards is right-footed instead of left-footed but he even has a pretty strong weak foot as well so he can kind of do it all I don't 
I don't have a lot of doubts that he'll be able to cover for Brooks physically. There might be an experience level that's that's missing there mm-hmm. between him and Long, but as far as ability wise, yeah, he can he can cover that ground. That's gonna be a tall, athletic, and bald baby. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. If Long and Brooks had a baby, it would be a baby though. It wouldn't be very good in defense. <sighs> Dang it. I'd suggest. Ryan, you're right. That's a really good point. Darn. I mean. I don't know. That that baby could come out like like six foot tall from birth. We don't know. We don't know these things. Right? We have to wait and see what medical science can do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger had a kid. Isn't that the plot of Twins? It's not, but it should be. Was that Twins or, or Junior? Junior. Junior. Yeah. Excuse me. I apologize. <laughs> Get <laughs> the right other matter, other cinematic masterpiece from those two. Oh, wonderful stuff. <laughs> All right. I think that pretty much uh, sums up the question. And thank you very much, Tyler, for that one. Why don't we move on to one? This is a pretty intriguing question from Monica Becker. How are player ratings determined? Your, your 10 to zeros, which you'll get on a number of web, websites and such. Is the rating completely statistical or is there a subjective element? Now, I, my immediate thought for this is it depends where you seek your ratings. Um, it depends on which type of ratings as well. If you're talking like a newspaper column, for example, that's a subjective journalist opinion. But I presume what Monica is going for here is your daddy ratings, your whoscored.com ratings, where, you know, it's there's algorithms involved, there's optostats involved. Joe, this feels like a, I, I, I could start off with you here. Um, what, what, are you, what, what do you got on this one? Yeah, I went into the who scored archives, I guess. No, I just went on their website and, and looked. Yep. Um, but but you're wise to make that distinction, Ryan. There's a difference between the, the French newspaper rating, 0 to 10. It's, it's arbitrary, yes. right? It's based off of how someone looked at a game and what they decided. But for who scored, or I use FOTMOB on my phone, uh, you know, more statistically inclined resources, who scored specifically uses an algorithm uh, from their website. Ratings are based on a unique, comprehensive statistical algorithm calculated live during games. So they bring in a whole bunch of, of stats, and then they update that based off of if you're if you're notching those stats or not. Right? Are you completing passes? Are you you know completing dribbles? Are you executing those actions? If, if Joe, a do you have completes... any idea how many what the number of raw statistics they utilize are? Oh, I have that two. Same quote. I, I, I say it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> two hundred, right? It's a whole bunch, and I, I think probably a lot of that is just posturing on their part to to make it sound more impressive than it really is. But it's not. It's not complicated, right? If you complete a pass, your rating is going to go up. If you have a pass that's intercepted, it's going to go down. But it is it it is based in statistics essentially. I found it very interesting looking at the who scored, um, how they get to their numbers. As we mentioned, over 200 raw statistics included. We all read the same press release on that one. Uh, but how the ratings start at six and they move up and down from there. I thought that was very interesting. Six is the base number. And that's more interesting when you look at the rating of the teams and the statistics, the top rated ones. If you go to whoscored.com slash statistics, the top rated team is Man City with a 6.99 average. So Man City, the top team, only have an average 0.99 above the base rate, if that makes sense. Uh, the best player, the top player, according to the statistics, is Leo Messi with an 8.52 rating at the moment. And if you look at the top 10, uh, they're all attacking players. Nine out of 10 are strikers. So I guess if you're going to look at the fallibility or the way these stats are, can, uh, are put together, it seems like they lean towards attacking play a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's why they try to add in the stuff about like they're weighted according to the influence within the game because they're trying to make an argument that they look at the statistical uh, data and utilize that, but then also they're looking at what the player did in the game. But I do wonder then how much they're looking at it because if you have a weaker team where they have one heroic center back like diving into everything, but maybe that means he's only winning four of eight challenges, then that statistically isn't going to be very good. So I think there are situations, at least in the past, when you had players who had consensus very good games that their player rating was not very good. And I think they've adjusted that a little bit. I think it's why to answer the kind of overall question for me, I think it's that it's a blend of the two more than it's ever been. I think it's still very reliant on statistics, but I think there is some subjectivity to it as well to try to balance things out and make it a little bit fairer uh, so that all positions are valued. Because I think historically, if a team concedes three and it's not the goalkeeper's fault that any of them are conceded, it's still three goals conceded. That goalkeeper gets really poor remarks as a result. And and these are flawed, right? This is a flawed system. There. Even even really smart data analytics folks right now, they're thinking through ways to do this better. Over at American Soccer Analysis, they have a metric called goals added, and they're trying to create a more comprehensive, less subjective metric with goals added. It, it tries to measure the positive or negative impact on every single action, but it's still 
only actions, right? We're still missing this extra level in data right now, at least publicly speaking, where it allows us to look at what's happening off the ball. That, that's what we miss right now with a lot of data that's, that's widely available. We can say, okay, I completed 100 passes and scored a goal, but how much does that really tell me about how effectively I influenced a game, right? Maybe it was a tap-in, and maybe those 100 passes were to a player that's three feet to my right. I mean, it, it still is a flawed way to look at it, and Goals Added does a much better job of using other, other numbers and pulling in other things as well on top of what places like who scored are able to pull in. But yeah, I, I just continue to caution folks. I think I've done this in the past, talking about player ratings. They're a reference point, and I think it is dangerous to sometimes look too far into them. Hmm. They are a good reference point, and to sort of top line answer the question, they they are based on an algorithm. But as Taylor says, there is a human element as well because we can't let the machines take over. We've all seen Westworld; we know how this ends. <laughs> we do. Um, do either of you like? I don't really use uh, player ratings, and I'm wondering if if either of you do, and what you use them for. I use who scored a lot because I use it to look at an individual player, like the breakdown of the ratings. I what what led them to that? You know that you. you interceptions your shots blah 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 but i wouldn't actually use the actual figure because it is just a top line reference i think as joe says yeah i'll, I'll go into a fat mob and just click on the player and it has the number on top of it but i don't i don't really pay attention to that i, I do the same thing you do ryan okay it's just a convenient way to get into some of the basic stats passes shots tackle like it, it's just an easy tunnel to get to what i actually want to see which again still doesn't tell me everything but at least it can tell me some things did you all read about how Lakeep do it? No. Oh, it's just a snooty guy who decides whether he likes a player or six not based on their personality. Guys. Whoa, six snooty guys. Whoa, snooty guys. Yeah, six journalists will give their marks uh, for the French national team after its games. The paper's so-called official rankings will be an average of those scores. That's like a podcast I would listen to is, is six uh, Frenchmen arguing about if it should be a 7.7 or a 7.5. I feel like that would be... Uh, very, very nerdy, but also pretty entertaining at the same time and maybe lead to a fistfight or two. And I would enjoy that. Taylor, I feel like we're on the same page on a lot of things, but I would set fire to that podcast and run away from it very quickly. <laughs> to each Just their to... own, my friend. To each their <laughs> own. You can go on your own island. That's fine. <laughs> I won't be with the Lakeep score givers, that's for sure, on my <laughs> island. Uh, one other thing I did notice about, or I did sort of look into when I'm trying to answer this question, gents, was I looked at other sources and um, whoscore.com uses a lot of OptaData and I think Squawker use OptaData as well. But one thing I, I kind of looked into was FIFA game player rankings. It's not it's not quite the 0 to 10 thing which uh, Monica was asking about, but it's intriguing because I think a lot of people base their assumptions on players on those FIFA game rankings as well. And there's always this clamor to find out what player gets, what ranking, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at how they come to those as well. And there's a EA Sports have a team of, uh, they say it's 25 EA producers, 400 outside data contributors who are he led by a head of data collection, but also a community of over 6,000 FIFA data reviewers or talent scouts who are volunteers. So... That feels a lot more of a fallible system to what Who Scored are doing to me. Much, much more complicated, lots more people involved, and volunteers giving their opinions, which feels like, uh, have they really got the best model there? I'm not convinced, Joe. I mean, let's just get the six French journalists to do it, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I think that would be the best, most fair way, and they're just going to give N'Golo Kante 99 everything, and I think there's value in that for all of us. That's Ryan, which, which outlet was that again? EA Sports. This is FIFA. I, see. I feel like you're just building your, uh, like, the England squad were frauded or defrauded campaign <laughs> for when you don't agree with their player rankings. Oh, yeah. I've got a backup for everything like that. Don't worry. Don't worry. Okay. I'll, I'll blame, ultimately, I'll blame the French, Taylor, because that's <laughs> I mean, what I, we always that, go back to. That also makes sense. <laughs> uh, thank you, Monica, for that question. That was a really good one. I had fun researching that one as well. We're going to be back very shortly with more questions. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We've got some fantastic listener questions for this week, including this one from Kenneth Seiden, who says, what, if anything, can MLS do to better develop players that are in their early 20s that aren't getting decent offers from Europe for them to continue to get better to provide solid depth to the United States Mutant Ninja Turtles? Joe, I'll let you go on this one first. I've got some thoughts on this one. I've actually sought some outside uh, uh, consultation on this one as well. But Joe, let, let's hear what you've got to say. Yeah, first of all, great acronyming there, Ryan. That is top-notch work. Uh, I, it I really does work. It really works, it works especially so well. because <laughs> because you're not because it should be teenage mutant ninja turtles, but we're talking about early twenties, so they are no longer teenage. So you remove that, and U.S. mutant ninja turtles does make even more sense. Uh, it works. Yeah. So well, well done, Ryan Bailey. It, I mean, and this just all boils down to Alex Roldan <laughs> being uh, a, somehow a mutant. Ninja Turtle yeah. somewhere in here. I, I think mm-hmm. I actually am genuinely curious to hear what you fellas have to say because I, I think there's a lot to be said here or there really might not be. I think in your early 20s, as far as I can tell from watching players and, and watching games and occasionally being around players as well, there's still room to grow. There's still this technical development that you can go through, right? So if we're looking at ways for MLS and really MLS teams specifically in their own environments to continue to develop early 20s kind of guys, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24 guys that aren't ready for that jump and maybe are never going to be ready for that jump but continue to elevate their quality to make them useful for the national team, there is still room to improve, right? You can still improve your your crossing. You can still improve your passing, your weak foot. We saw that with Jordan Morris really well with the Sounders. His left foot is now not not nearly the the weak point that it was in the past. You can still do things to improve your understanding of space and tactics, and, and that goes across all ages, really. But the way I think about this question is actually less about, I guess, the, the individual player and, and more thinking that Major League Soccer needs to get better, right? That's how you really improve the overall baseline level of a player is you improve the league, right? I see this as a, a rising tide lifts all boats situation. If Major League Soccer is improving and the individual teams are improving, more importantly, then the players that are in their early 20s but not ready for that jump yet are going to be more useful to the national team. I mean, am I way off on this, Taylor? It feels like improving the level will improve the players along with it or those players really won't be involved anymore. I mean, no, I don't think you're way off. I think I am a little bit more inclined to say that it isn't just a Major League Soccer issue. I think if you look at the way clubs around the world or a lot of clubs around the world want to operate it's they want to bring in as young a player as they can to develop them in the way that the club wants to play and the style they want to play while still emphasizing the sort of raw abilities of the given player but I also think they'll bring in the 25 year old if they're that world-class player for that next level amount of money but to some extent I think it is the case around the world that like 20 to 24 if you haven't reached a certain level can be a challenging period because it can be seen as 
this player should have fully developed by this point. There's not as much we can teach them. So I think it, it's a strange age age range in which the player is not at their like athletic peak yet. But in some ways, I think the way we value players puts them at a disadvantage. And so if you are a 22-year-old player for, let's say, the Seattle Sounders, I think there's people will look at that player as being like, oh, they're not necessarily like that top-tier elite player for the Sounders. Let's say they're a quality role player. I'm talking about a specific player now. Um, like, I think even if that player does well, there's still going to be an idea that they haven't reached that next level. They're not like like some like otherworldly talent that requires a move to a stronger league. And I think to some extent, the way fans see players also factors into this. I think players can work really, really hard. I think it's an individual thing. I think stability on the coaching front and on the organizational front allows that player to continue to play in a system for four years. And I think that puts them in a much stronger position to develop certain skills and necessary skills. But I think there's a lot of other components involved and it's a kind of common issue in my mind. I think there definitely are a lot of components involved to this question. And when I first saw it, guys, I thought my initial thought was MLS are doing something about this. They have done something specifically with these youth under 22 player slots that they formally introduced for 2021, which is um, basically you can bring in three more players. They can be paid uh, anything that isn't above the maximum salary budget charge uh, and basically taking a subsidiary uh, a subsidy sorry from the target allocation money blah 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 easier for you to get younger players onto your roster is is the, is the uh, the reasoning for that rule but then i looked into it a little more and it turns out that's largely not going to benefit necessarily domestic players there'll be a lot of foreign players who are going to benefit from that under 22 player slots so that's not the answer to this question uh, and when i thought about it a little more i thought it was maybe You've got to do the work before they hit their early 20s. It's getting in the work before they hit that age. It's more academy growth, which to, to, a, to an extent is something that's happening a lot in the league as well. You know, try, an emphasis on young talent, an emphasis on players coming through. Uh, so, so you don't hit that issue when players are already at their early 20s. And I actually reached out to um, someone who I thought might have some perspective on this question. I reached out to a guy called Mark Nichols, who's a technical director at Charlotte FC. He also built the uh, Seattle Sounders Academy. And his answer was one that I thought, not too dissimilar to what Joe was saying, but more on an individual basis. He said, to get those players to be, uh, you know, develop in their early 20s and, and to get them more solid depth for the USMNT, you have to play them. It's quite obvious. You have to play them, he said. He said, you make a plan for them. You look at the long-term potential, their positional potential. He says, you hold them accountable. And Mark says, you provide them with development plans and additional support. So basically, it's give them attention, play them, give them minutes is what, yeah. um, is what the, the, the pro in this situation is saying. Which I think makes a lot of sense because the to provide better solid depth to the U.S. men's national team is, to me, a secondary thing. It's the effect, if not necessarily the cause. And if a player is playing really, really well, then they're going to get called in. Then they're going to get looks from Burhalter uh, at national team level. But to do that, yeah, Ryan, absolutely. They have to be played. They have to be back. They have to get the opportunities. And to some extent, I think they have to have visibility. When I think about how we market domestic talent in Major League Soccer. It is either established national team players that will uh, bring people into the stands, or it is up-and-coming potential national team stars. And you can't really, like, hype journeymen necessarily, but, like, there's... Like, I look at Matt Turner, who is a good goalkeeper, but the way Twitter talks about him is as though he is the greatest goalkeeper alive. And there's something to be said for sort of getting the, that like organic hype around a player, even if it's like inflated or even if it's a little bit over the top sometimes, I think it, it helps establish that player's reputation. And, and to me, it, it does go back a little bit to the way we talk about these players, the way we cover them, the way we perceive them. I think there's a dismissiveness at times to some of the players that we're talking about of this range and this ability that if we look more at like, oh, Giassi Zardes does this, this, and this, and this, and this, that's why Greg Berhalter likes him as opposed to he's just bad, I don't like that guy. I think there's more opportunity for players to get looks to be in that conversation without it me immediately being, ah, he's not good enough, we shouldn't even have him. If he's even involved, things are terrible. And that does in my mind, tend to be the way things go with some of these names. Well, and I, I also think going back a little bit to what, Ryan, you were saying, talking about what Mark Nichols brought to this dialogue, I think part of this also from an MLS perspective is just time, right? If you look at where the league is in their growth 
and, and looking specifically at the development of youth players. So that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? Developing talent that then becomes, you know, these players that are no longer teenage mutant ninja turtles. They're just mutant ninja turtles. We want this, this golden age range of when players are just entering their prime. And there's going to be some guys left over that, that aren't going to Europe or that aren't quite at that level. But you still need them to be at a high level. And I think as we see MLS continue to lean more and more into youth development initiatives, and they're, they're trying to do that, right? We're seeing markets like Dallas, they're, they're just the token example that comes to mind, develop homegrown players. And there are cap allotments made there for teams that, that develop talent and label them as homegrown players. So I think we could be entering a stage, and maybe this is still three, four, five years away, where there just naturally is is more, number one, more talent in their early 20s, more American talent that have been developed through the homegrown initiative. But then number two, they're just players that are left that haven't gone over to Europe and their level's going to rise as the league naturally improves. So I think part of it could just be waiting for MLS to hit that development cycle. Not that there doesn't need to be proactive movement and action accomplished during this waiting period, but it might have something to do with where the league is at in its life. I think this is all very insightful and this is wonderful um, answers to Kenneth's question. But while you were talking there, Joe, you've just prompted me to come up with the real solution to this question. Do you guys remember NFL Europe? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what we actually need the to do. fire, baby. Yeah. And <laughs> a late, was it late 90s? I, I, I went to see some games at Charlton and Tottenham of, uh, of some NFL Europe games. Uh, it was a whole thing. Um, but we need MLS to make MLS Europe. So we'll move over... Get some MLS teams in Europe, uh, maybe even start a league there, a, a pan-continental league, like a, a super league of sorts. Then those players are in Europe. They're under the, under the noses of these European teams. I don't know where I was going with this, but basically it's the answer to the question. <laughs> Boo, Ryan. Boo. Get some decent offers from Europe because it gets them over there. Doesn't that, isn't that half the problem here? Yes, that is definitely the problem. The <laughs> lack of a Super League. Uh, Ryan Bailey on record is supporting the Super League. I think we that's that's what we should take away from this episode. That's the uh, second yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah. Thank yep. you for indulging my ridiculous uh, answer there, <laughs> Kenneth Eden, to your question as well. Thank you very much. Let's move on to another one here from Taylor Judd. Uh, oh, this is a good one as well. COVID restrictions have lifted and it is 100% safe to travel. That's not a statement. That's a theoretical that Taylor is presenting for this question. What city do you visit for one week to see both the best soccer and have the best vacation experience this summer? And Taylor would like an American and an international choice, s'il vous play. I got some options here. Mm, Taylor, mm-hmm. I'll go to you first. All right. Uh, and I will take us down a bummer of a path first to say <laughs> that I had a lot of answers to this question. Uh, and then I basically I wanted to do a South American one because we have Copa America. There's a couple of different cities that are hosting events in Colombia. So I reached out to Felipe about which city would be the best to go to. And his response was in Colombia right now. None of them, because <laughs> it's still very, very bad there in Colombia. It's very bad in most of South America. So I think I sort of have this like, oh, I've had my second dose and like the uh, Virginia. Virginia just made like masks optional, like, oh, we're doing fine, forgetting that it's still a pandemic that's raging. So with that bleak reminder in mind, I will say maybe not Cali, which was going to be my answer. I will instead say two strange ones or at least one strange one. Maybe I'm going to go with Kansas City and I'm going to go with Amsterdam. Those are my answers. You want to expand on that a little bit? Nope, that's it. That's all I want to give. Yes, I will. Um, Amsterdam or Glasgow. That's the other one. Uh, because Amsterdam from June 13th to June 21st, you get to watch the Netherlands play Ukraine, Austria, and North Macedonia in uh, the European Championship. Uh, or you could do uh, Glasgow and watch... First of all, Ryan, how am I supposed to pronounce that city? It's not Glasgow, right? No, it's not Glasgow or Moscow. It's Moscow and Glasgow, darling. There we go. Glasgow. Uh, you could watch Scotland play the Czech Republic. Uh, you could watch Croatia play the Czech Republic and you could watch Scotland play Croatia. You'd also be there for Scotland playing England away. And that might be better if there's no like sort of focal point for the frustration if things don't go well. So that's my international choice. And then for Sporting KC, uh, I would say you could get to watch them play Colorado and LAFC in one week, or you could go to Kansas City from July 11th to July 18th. And you'd be there for all three Gold Cup group stage games for the United States. And then you can eat some barbecue along the way as well. Uh, Taylor, that's excellent reasoning and logic, but please don't tell anyone to go to Glasgow unless they have to. Not for a vacation, <laughs> certainly. Really? I've always, I've always wanted to go to Scotland. Scotland is on my list. Oh, Scotland is very beautiful in many places. Just not Glasgow? Not so much. <laughs> I'm going to tell Graham he said that. Oh, you can tell Graham. 
if Graham's, he's, Graham's if he's house actually busy living and, on a construction site, yeah. yeah the, 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 the construction site around Graham's house and his house is lovely. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that for the record. <laughs> Joe, how Perfect. about you? Uh, well, I'm going to LA first in, for my American experience because I, I kind of leaned into the best soccer. You know, Taylor wants to see the best soccer and have the best vacation. And the, one of the marquee games, I think, in MLS over the summer in terms of quality is going to be LAFC versus NYCFC. That's on May 29th. So if we're going to extend this out for a week, then you can also go a week early on May 22nd and catch LAFC and the Rapids. LAFC have started off poorly this year, but they still play really nice soccer. Maybe you'll get to see Carlos Vela if he's back from whatever injury problem he's dealing with. I think you get to see Bank of California Stadium, which I've heard is, is very beautiful, and it looks great on TV and on the broadcast. So it, it feels like a good spot, kind of a, a chip-in for a, vaca- a shoe-in for a vacation, and you get to see some good soccer as well. And then international, uh, we're going to London, everybody, uh, for yeah. the end of the European Championships, July 6th to July 11th. Toss a couple extra days on there to see some sights. On the 6th, you get the first semifinal for the Euros, the second semifinals the next day, and then the final is July 11th. So, I mean, tournament soccer is always a little bit wacky, but you know, it's endearing in its own way. You get to see some some great players and see some great moments. Plus, you get to see London, or at least parts of London. I think I think that sounds like a good one. That's a that's an excellent answer because London in July, um, there's a very very small window where it won't rain every day, and <laughs> if you look at sort of early July, then then you're kind of in that pocket. And as you say, two round of sixteen games at Wembley, two semifinals and a final as well. That would be a strong contender for me uh, to, to visit. And, I, and when I was looking at this question, I looked at a few um, options. Uh, like like Taylor looked at. A, a copper america visit but uh i did find the similar issues that taylor found and also it's quite spread out because it's in argentina and colombia and no it doesn't seem like many cities have a, a concentration of games uh looks at tokyo for the olympics but that too is quite spread out it's in uh, kashima uh, saitama sapporo sendai and yokohama as well that's quite a lot of travel it's not one city visit although you know bucket list for me tokyo i'd love to go there one day and looking at american cities i couldn't I looked at maybe Vegas because Vegas is Vegas and it's awesome. And you've got the Gold Cup final there. I think um, that would be a good one, but it's only one game to go and see there. Orlando, because you might get Toronto and Orlando matches there. Is that a good enough reason? You get a lot of matches. <laughs> you do. You have to be in Orlando, though. Yeah. Do you not, you, you're not a fan of the Mouse House? <laughs> I mean, uh, to, to paraphrase The Guardian when talking about Coventry, Orlando, in my mind, is the city that put the words concrete and nightmare into the phrase concrete nightmare. <laughs> is that good? No, I mean, it, it was mostly, I think I was last there in July where everything was spread out because of MLS All-Star. Uh, and so, yeah, you had the drive all over the place. It was very hot. It was very humid, uh, despite there being very little water around. Uh, so I think that's definitely part of it. And yes, there is also the idea of like the giant looming corporations all over the place that does make me slightly uh awkward slash uncomfortable you also might get eaten by a gator at some point or at least share a room with one at some point in orlando so (laughs) that's that's a fair concern as well but i actually think i might have cracked this one oh one other option by the way portugal because eventually every game's going to be there anyway um and portugal's (laughs) portugal's a really nice place for vacation it's beautiful um i think the answer i found in afc asian world cup qualification which takes place this June. Uh, I got to this because I was looking at what Australia are doing. Australia aren't actually going to Australia because it's quite draconian, the COVID entry requirements at the moment. They're based in, it's either Saudi or Kuwait, I think. Uh, They're playing six, sorry, they're playing eight. No, they're playing four games, uh, Australia are, in June in Kuwait. And if you go to either Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Dubai, or Guiyang, South Korea, you can get an eight-game AFC fill within June. So you can see eight international games in either one of those places. places. And say what you want about, you know, Bahrain, Qatar, Dubai and, and, and their political stance. But <laughs> Dubai is very nice for a vacation. I've done it myself before. You can go to Dubai and see eight AFC games. Nice vacation. Some teams you probably haven't seen before from the AFC World Cup qualification. Um, uh, a, a new experience for you. I've won. Did I win or do I win? Not since <laughs> Fox went with the say what you will about Stalin has somebody <laughs> hand waved an entire like horrific practice with say what you will about them. Uh, now I'm going to say you did not win. I would per- personally rather just go to Amsterdam. Amsterdam is my vote, uh, even if it's for my own uh, vote. Joe, what was your international one? Mine London. was London. Mine right. was London. It doesn't really matter what you guys say because you're both being exiled to, to islands, right? So, so you can't actually go on these trips. This is not for you. This is for Taylor Judd. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, that's fair. Well, I did get confused there for a moment when you said it's for Taylor. <laughs> yeah, I went, I went full name on that one. We've all Thank discovered you. we want to go to different places. That's interesting. We didn't all reach a consensus. I thought I might. I thought why win you over with the promise of some AFC games? Evidently not, though, gents. Um, Kuwait, I'll, maybe. I could go to Kuwait. I've never been to Kuwait. Kuwait's where the Australian games will be as well. So you could uh, certainly could consider that one. That would be interesting. That's a good question from Taylor there, wasn't it? I really enjoyed that one. We are going to take a couple more questions from you guys after these short messages. Do stick around. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Couple more questions from you guys, including Robert Cordova, who asks, how did Sporting Club de Portugal win the Portuguese league? Uh, simple one here. They got more points than the rest of the team in the league. What's next? Michael Thompson, yep. he asks, mm-hmm. no, I'm being, uh, I'm being silly there. Well, let's answer that in a little bit more detail because Sporting Lisbon, uh, as I like to call them and all English people do for no particular reason, despite that not being their name, they ended a 19-year title drought. They last won it in 2002. They won it with a game to Spare, uh, ahead of, of course, Porto and Benfica. They also won the League Cup this season. They very much were not the favourites to win this um, league at the start of the season. Um, for one thing, a lot less financial clout these days than Porto and Benfica. Joe, let's go to you first. How did they do it? Tell us. Yeah, there's a whole lot to unpack here, and I'm sure we will. So I'm just going to try to take a small bite one thing that I think is important, especially looking at you know how are Sporting able to punch above their weight relative to the other giants at the top of the Portuguese first division, they crashed out of the Europa League early on. They, they crashed out in their playoff in October. I believe it was on October 1st. And then immediately after crashing out, they started crushing it. Well, they, they'd already been crushing it, but they continued crushing it in the league. They, they went under this incredible unbeaten run and they they didn't break that streak until a 4-3 loss to Benfica on Saturday after they'd already won the league so their unbeaten run stretched across almost the entire season I don't think that happens without dropping out of another major European competition you can focus more on the league you can focus more on getting your best players fit to play on Saturday and then Saturday and then Saturday as opposed to having to to rotate between Saturday Wednesday Saturday Thursday whatever it is right it's easier to focus on one job and sporting had the weird ability I guess the weird bonus of being able to focus almost solely on the league and then toss in the cup as well so this is like the Leicester and the Chelsea winning the league most recently option as well. Not being in Europe, going out the cups early, focusing. Is that what you're saying, Joe? I, I think there's benefit in that, right? I think there's tons of other factors here, and I invite you guys to, to bring up some of them. But that's, that's got to at least be mentioned in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Taylor? 
I, I would agree with that. I think that is a huge one that like you don't have those distractions. You don't have the fixture congestion that leads to fatigue that leads to injury. I think Joe's absolutely right. For me, I kind of did not know this situation with Sporting Club de Portugal that I, I completely did not know that they had not won it since 2002. I, I kind of always assumed it was like Benfica, Porto, Sporting, all sort of rotating. Occasionally one is dominant for a while. I didn't realize it had been this long. Did you assume I, that um, Ronaldo won it for the five minutes he was there? Yes, I did. <laughs> I also kind of forgot that this was the team that had the fans attack the players, that had contracts get canceled. It's why Rui Patricio is Wolves goalkeeper is because of that incident, and he left. Uh, I think there ended up being a small amount of compensation, but certainly not what it would have been otherwise. So this was a club that were in a pretty considerable amount of disarray, and that extended until about March of 2020 when they appointed their current manager, uh, Ruben Amorim, Amorim. And that is uh, another big one for me. He is currently only 36 years old at time of recording, so even younger when first appointed. Had only been a top-flight manager for two months. He'd been managing Braga. And for all of that, uh, uh, Sporting Club de Portugal paid the third highest release clause, I think is what I what I saw. It was 10 million euros at the time. It's risen to 14.4 million since. But that was because I think they identified a young manager who was going to come in with a specific philosophy and style. And I, from some of the things I read, it sounded like, and that wasn't wholly dependent on the players that he had, the quality of players, that is. He wasn't looking for, I need this type of striker for this amount of money. I think he was kind of willing to work with what was there or certainly with aspects of what was there. They did sell a lot of players. They did move a lot of players on. They did bring in other players. But I think he was one of those managers who wasn't seeing big club equals tons of money to go around. And I think that was part of his appeal. But then his style, his philosophy, and his approach to man management, I think also of fundamental importance to this championship result. Yeah, I think that was where my answer kind of led me as well. Almost, almost Moneyball-esque in some ways, mm-hmm. this 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 um, Sporting Lisbon title, in that, they, as, as we've said, they didn't have the financial um, clout of the other big teams there. But uh, it looks like they've sort of targeted a lot of youth players and also mixed in a little bit of experience as well and gone for the kind of players who might not have been sought by other teams. Almost Leicester-esque in that, in that way. And you look at like Pedro Conchalves, who was, who's the top, a joint top league scorer in, in the uh, Liga Nosh this season, um, who was temporarily at Wolves and didn't, you know, didn't, didn't cut it there. Not, not, not kind of a headline-grabbing player before the season. And I, I actually looked into how much um, Mr. Mendes had a hand in this team as well, as I think, figured he might. And the answer is not a lot. He's got a lot of uh, bigger players on Porto and Benfica, to be honest. He's got a few players like Rodrigo Fernandez on, on Sporting Lisbon and a couple of um, lesser players as well. But that, that wasn't the answer there. But it seems like, um, yeah, a really targeted uh, recruitment process they've gone through here and relying on uh, having a very good defence. They only conceded 19 goals so far this season or, or in this season, a plus 41 goal difference. And as we know, defences win titles. I mean, I mean, they do, kinda. but I think I think attacks definitely help. Joe, what were you going to say? Because I want to talk about the attack, but you are welcome to talk about whatever you want first. No, please go attack, and then uh, I'll I'll pipe in. Sure, because I think part of the way they're able to be so defensively solid is because of the way they set up, which is a theoretically a three four three. I would go with much more of a five two three uh, from everything I have seen and from a lot of what I read and watched. And that front three, uh, usually uh, Nuno Santos, uh, Pedro Gonzalez, and Paulinho, or uh, also frequently Tiago Tomas. But three of those four were all brought in this summer. Uh, to Ryan's point, uh, Pedro Gonzalez for seven. Uh, uh, $7.7 million, I believe. Nuno Santos for even less at $4.4 million. Both of those players now, if they were to be sold, would be sold for probably 10 times that <laughs> um, because they've been so strong this season. But that unit, the number of minutes they've had together, it allows them to press the way they want to. And those front three are sort of defending from the front by trying to defend as a tight three and they push uh, their opponent to one side and then they can lock them in and sort of try to force the turnovers from there. So it's almost uh, defending from the front by having such a tight unit that plays together so often. I think it's like 31 appearances, 31 appearances and 29 appearances uh, for three of those four. So on the whole, you've got a really unified team that then work together as a unit to win games and not concede goals. And I think, yeah. Taylor, speaking to that point, I saw a lot of that 5-2-3 shape that you're talking about, especially defensively. I think Amarim kind of pulled a Thomas Tuchel, or at least that's the, the parallel I'm going to draw here in terms of you come to a new job, and Amarim came 
to sporting in a little bit of a different situation than when Tuchel goes to Chelsea. But you come into a new job and you don't try to reinvent the wheel. You you come in with an idea of how you want to play, but you don't overcomplicate things. It just so happens that the shape is the same with Tuchel and his three four three, and then uh, Amorim and his three four three. But the idea I think is more important than the actual formation. It's it's we're going to come in and we're going to play a logical style where players have defined positions. Yes, they can rotate. Yes, they can move. But we're going to keep things pretty simple. He threw in a tweak occasionally. From what I saw, there was a 3-4-3 diamond, almost Cruyff-style midfield at one point. But the dominant shape in possession was that 3-4-3. And then defensively, it naturally falls back into a 5-2-3. Force the ball wide, deal with crosses with those center backs, and, and don't give up goals. It was a pretty straightforward recipe from Amarim. And... And it worked. Yeah, they overperformed their XG, and, and they probably... Yeah. I think the odds of them winning this again, pretty low, unless they, they can continue to elevate the squad, which is possible, right, with, with good recruitment. But still, setting the underlying numbers aside, the tactical blueprint, I think, was strong and, and logical, and maybe those two adjectives are, are the most important ones you could have for a new coach coming into a pretty new, uh, new situation. I would add, uh, besides this question, and building on Taylor Judd's question about which city to go and what soccer in, uh, Lisbon would be very yeah. high on my list, here, by the way, because um, traditionally the, the two clubs, Benfica and, and Sporting, have produced some of the best players like ever, basically. Uh, and it, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Lisbon, but there's a, there's a highway, I think it's called the E1, where you sort of drive down it and on your right, you've got the Josie Alvalade Stadium, the, the, the um, Sporting Stadium, and you go like, a mile and a half further down it, and on the left is Benfica Stadium. Hmm. It's weird. This this one highway has two gigantic stadiums on either side, and it's a very, very cool city. Portugal is one of my favorite places in the world. So I will just add that um, if you've never been and you want to do a little a little uh, trip somewhere in Europe to see some games, there's a much worse place to go than Lisbon. Uh, I, I appreciate that. I've never been to Portugal, and that is certainly uh, on my list. And I'd like to see both those stadiums. So there you go. Uh, Joe, you as the dictator of Porto, uh, <laughs> I, I, w- I was then wondering, like, is it also the case that Porto and Benfica have been particularly poor? And we may have sort of, sort of already answered this, but do you think it is the case that a lot of this, in terms of why they haven't been able to pick up some of the results maybe they normally would, do you think a lot of it is just that they've been in European competitions with Porto going maybe a little bit deeper than we would have expected? Do you think that impacted their ability to be competitive on multiple fronts? I think that's a lot of it, right? And I, I'd be lying if I said I'd, I'd done deep dives on all of these teams, mm-hmm. but that has to play a part, right? Taylor, you talked about it, the rotation and the, the extra minutes leading to injuries, leading to difficulties within a squad. That that plays a toll on you over the course of a season, especially with Porto and the, the run that they made. But also, I mean, it's not as if Sporting has run away with the title. For as good as their unbeaten run was, they're not 10, 15 points clear at the top of the league right now. They, they have a couple point lead over Porto and another few points over Benfica, but they're not miles ahead. I think, I honestly think this sounds so nerdy and I'm pushing on my glasses as I'm saying it. I think if... If the XG numbers, I, I would bet, I didn't look at them, but I bet the XG numbers probably reflect better on Porto and Benfica than they do on Sporting, which maybe over the course of a few seasons will level back out again and, and we'll see that hierarchy kind of shift back to where it's been. But again, that's that's kind of up to Sporting on how they want to build the squad going forward. Mm-hmm. Then the only the only other wrinkle I had seen about why Benfica might not be as... Strong is because they were starting Jan Vertonghen and they were not starting Ruben Diaz, who was sold in the summer. And there's an argument to be made that he was so important to that team. We've seen how, how good he's been for Manchester City, that losing the sort of rock and defense really impacted Benfica's ability to stay strong and competitive throughout. Agreed. <laughs> I think um, the, one of the reasons Porto haven't done well as well, I'd add, is because Sergio Conceição keeps playing his own son. And um, nepotism only works if you're a recent Republican president. I think uh, that's what's been shown. Any more on this one before we move on to the final question, gentlemen? Just I'm really excited to see what happens next, man. Because uh, I like with everything that they went through for, the, for Sporting to be able to win this title the way they have. And as Joe said, I think they're overperforming on their own expected goals as well as goals, like expected goals conceded or whatever that would be. I think on both fronts, they're overperforming. So maybe that means they crash back down or maybe that means before that happens, Ruben Amorim breaks another transfer record when he moves to, say, Tottenham. Did you see the video um, last week of Ronaldo's mum celebrating Sporting's win? No. They were like out on a patio or some restaurant or something. And it's, the the mum and the whole family would... Going nuts with uh, Sporting's win in what may have been a carefully staged video to show the 
family support for that club, uh, given maybe he might go back there at some point in the next year or two. Interesting, I thought. I, I don't see how they could afford him, number one, and I don't see how he makes that team better, aside from just being Ronaldo. But mm. the way they play, he does not fit the style. It's sort of the problem Juve had with Maurizio Sarri coming in, is that Ronaldo doesn't really fit what he wants to do. I'm not sure Ronaldo fits what they're doing right now, but he is still Ronaldo. He is a big draw, so I guess we'll see, and especially if it's going to make his mom happy. Maybe that's an important factor for sporting as well. Yeah, he's going to decide he doesn't want to do it for the money anymore, just for his mummy. Mummy, not money. It's going to be the way he goes in the next year or two. We shall see about that. Robert Cordova, thank you very much for that question. One last one from Michael Thompson, who says, In 2020, the five substitutions rule made sense due to compressed schedule around the world. In 2021, the case is less clear, but MLS seems to have moved forward with little hesitation. Do you think European leagues may do the same this fall? And could the five-sub rule be here to stay? Joe. Five sub rule where you can basically change 50% of your outfield team. What do you think? I think it could be here to stay. I gather from your tone, Ryan, that you might not be a huge proponent of this rule. Maybe I'm over uh, reading into that. But I think it it could be around for a while. And by a while, I mean forever. Uh, As teams are playing more and more games, which has happened even though we're out of the, the period of time where we've had games canceled or a lot of games canceled and you're having to make all of them up, there still are a ton of games, right? And, and we're seeing more with, even though the Super League didn't happen, we're seeing more little competitions pop up, especially here in the United States. MLS and Liga Mekis are constantly trying to further inter, uh, further integrate themselves into each other. And that leads to more games and more little random tournaments. The Champions League in Europe is going to be expanded. The, the CONCACAF Champions League is going to be expanded in a couple of years. So my thoughts on this is, yeah, it, it does change a lot of what's happening on the field, but it doesn't disrupt the flow of the game. It's still the same three windows. I think for the sake of benefiting the players and, and aiding their health, I think it kind of makes sense. Uh, but I think I'm generally for it because it doesn't really change a whole lot, at least not in terms of how I watch games. I think you've definitely got some good points there, Joe. And and the pros are it is good for player welfare. You know, we have players playing 60 games a season or more, and that's too much. And this could certainly help ease that. Uh, I also love chaos. And when you can change 50% of your team, that (laughs) can encourage that kind of thing. But I think one of the reasons, uh, I think it may come in across Europe, but maybe not all European leagues because there is an argument that it disproportionately helps bigger teams with stronger squads if you're Man City and you've got a ridiculous bench it helps you more than if you're Burnley frankly Uh, and it might encourage teams to stockpile for this very reason and if you look at the Premier League um, I think it's several times they voted against the five subs and uh, um, most recently I think it was December they, they, they chose not to do it and the way the voting went, it seemed as if it was the majority of teams voting against it, not the big six teams who may benefit from the um, having five subs. And if you look at uh, big six teams and maybe getting their own way these days after what they try to pull, I'm not sure they're going to get many more decisions going their way, certainly not from the majority of other Premier League teams helping them out. So in the Premier League, I'm not sure it will be here to stay, but I could see it potentially happening in some other leagues. Taylor? Um, I mean, I think I think I am uh, of two minds here. I think I like the idea because it does allow you more opportunities to sub players, especially if you do have injury concerns. If there's a concussion issue, to have that extra luxury of getting a player off, obviously it does then take one of your sort of allotted three periods when you can make those changes. But I, I think there are reasons why it's a good idea. I also think there are reasons why it could really be quickly abused especially if you have larger squads if you're letting the match day squad be 23 instead of 18 or whatever it might be in your respective league like then you are going to have those bigger clubs spend more money knowing that they can just add more depth and it sort of defeats the purpose in allowing you to spread around the minutes and make sure you're, you're doing some load management it just allows you to sign more players there's a reason why Chelsea who signed 35 attackers or so last summer voted for in favor of this. It's because they want to be able to have more options and keep more players happy. So I think there's like a cynical side that would take advantage of it. And I think that there's a positive side in which this could be very useful. My strange thought experiment that I would throw out to you two, and I'm, and I'm happy for you both to say, no, that's a terrible idea. Would if if we have different leagues saying, yeah, we're going to do five, if we had some leagues say, no, we're going to stick with what we want, or maybe some leagues go with four. What if they also instituted a third transfer window? 
Because that would, if you did one in the summer, if you did one in like November and then one in February, that would allow you to bring in players and not have it be an emergency situation. And you could do more short-term loans, things of that nature, which sort of solves the same problem uh, to some extent. But I'm wondering if you all think that's uh, an interesting way to go about it or if you would just rather they increase the subs and stick with that. Uh, wouldn't that wouldn't the third transfer window have the same disadvantages and it would just help the bigger teams? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, I think it would also mean panic buying, which means you can really hold those bigger clubs hostage and try to get a little bit more money out of them, which would probably work. But also, yes, it does mean that they could then sign those players. I think I'm just looking at it as more of a, like, investigate all options before trying to cram in something that could be potentially problematic. But I guess I'm doing the exact same thing. So either way, it's going to be problems. You're not part of the solution, Taylor. You're part of the problem. I guess not. I guess not. I guess not. <laughs> Uh, I don't know, Joe. Have you got any thoughts on that one? It's an interesting thought experiment. And I think it's weird that we're going to probably have inconsistency across leagues. And I think we'll have a point where European pan-continental competition very much has five substitutions, but some of the leagues do not as well. And we'll have some disparity there as well. So I don't know if this one gets ironed out because it's not naturally, uh, you know, it's not a 100% yes, this makes sense for 100% of teams situation. Yeah, it's hard. There's no clear answer to what's best here, or at least we don't have one. Taylor, I like your idea. I'm not sure that it solves the problem, but I think it's fun, and I, I, I enjoy the thought experiment. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know. There is no way. I guess let me put it this way. There's no way to make this rule change equally benefit everyone or no practical way that we'd ever see instituted. Um, and so that makes approaching this question in the way that we're trying to that would not just immediately benefit the, the big six in the Premier League yeah. or whoever. It makes answering this question kind of impossible. Um, and so I don't know what's going to happen. I do, I do genuinely think that we'll see the five-sub rule stay in a lot of places. Ryan, you're right. It might not be everywhere, but – I, I wouldn't be surprised to see us all eventually or to see all these leagues eventually get to that point at some point down the line. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Joe. I think we'll see four or five or an extra allotment for injury, something like that. And I think it does become more permanent. I will be totally honest and say that I think part of this for me, I am I was very much in favor of the five sub rule, except that. My, the way I take notes on games is I kind of try to write down everything that I can. And tracking 10 substitutions is a lot of substitutions to track and figuring out who's gone where and who's playing where and when can be a little bit time consuming. And I think there's a self-interested part of me that's just like, I only want to have to track six <laughs> instead of 10. Your notes are beautiful, Taylor. Like they are, they're pristine. Too so much. I Too don't, much, I don't want much. soccer to overload you to the point where your handwriting starts to look like mine. So yeah, maybe we do need to go back to three, everybody. This there is, was one this is game. top priority. There was one game when my like I got the lineups totally wrong and had to redo it and and it's it's not pretty. It's not pretty. <laughs> oh, it's the champion it's the uh the women's champions league final uh, of this past weekend when two different sites had the lineups incorrect and I wrote them in pen and it was a problem. So, I'm blaming the substitutions rule for that as well. So, knowing how fastidious you are with the notes, Taylor, did you did you like put yourself in a cone of shame and spank yourself for a little while after getting messing it up? <laughs> I can I considered tearing the page out and restarting. Yes. Okay. We're saying the same thing. We're saying the same thing, basically. Um, I will. I will add um, that I, I. I can understand why MLS have instituted the, the five subs, and they, they, the league does like to jump on new things and try them out, and, uh, and that's good for them to do. Does it work better in MLS because it's a closed system, less likely to stockpile? Uh, the the way it would help elite teams. There's not quite as much disparity. Is that fair to say? It's it's better better used in this. I think. Yeah. It's, I think it's I, fair. Yeah, I think that's definitely a, a big part of it, Ryan. And then like the other small percentage, I think, would be that Major League Soccer already has so many strange rules and permutations when it comes to roster and budget and general operation and charter flights versus non-charter flights that like I think there's more willingness to do strange things and go and like roll the dice on strange approaches, knowing that some will stick and some won't. But I do think when you have all of these odd stipulations in place or seemingly odd stipulations in place what's one more versus if you're uh the premier league where everything has to be a certain way and this is how it must be and we must all act accordingly i think there's less inclination to experiment and try random things oh, those stuffy brits yeah. to change their ways goodness yeah. me uh, I think that pretty much wraps up our listener questions show. Gentlemen, mm -hmm. it's been a pleasure. Listeners, thank you very much for indulging us on this one. Taylor Rockwell, a pleasure as always. 
A pleasure as always to you, my friend. Listeners, I would say uh, we were going to have the return of our scouting reports today. It has been way, way, way too long. And for that, I sincerely apologize. When I went to look at the scouting report document, there were many of them, but I think they all stopped in early to mid-April, which is fair since we haven't read them since, I think, 2020. Uh, So what I would say is I would encourage people to start sending them again if you do have a player you're scouting. And I promise that we're going to return to having scouting reports uh, be parts of shows. I think if you had been sending them, I have kept that list. I'm going to go through and find all the people who did and find a way to make it up to you all for those reports not being read. Um, And then I will also work on getting a system in place to assign players and get things rolling on that front as well. So lots of work to be done with the scouting network, but I do want to bring it back and make it great again. And now I realized I've just said that and I don't like it. So I'm going to say instead, we're just going to make the scouting network awesome. Thumbs up. Are you going to make it up to them by giving them free access to Graham's OnlyFans? I mean, if they want, but like it, it's it's just so perfectly like erotic that I don't know if anything will ever live up to it. And on that note, Joe Lowry, a pleasure to have you on the show today. <laughs> I don't have any uh, TSS-wide announcements to make, so Ryan, I'm just going to say thank you for having me, and thank you for hosting and doing the wonderful job that you do. Of course. Ta-ta for now! 